I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show. Thanks for listening. Quan Barry's new novel begins in a dusty Mongolian village where a young Buddhist monk is shooting pool and waiting for a ride to the big city. Here's what he knows. There is one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This is the true journey. Everything else is bait. Ms. Barry is a poet and novelist and professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's the author of She Weeps Each Time You're Born. Her new novel is titled When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. And she joins us today from Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. It's been a long time since we've talked. I'm glad to have you here. It has been a long time, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks. So I want to know what you think of this. It occurred to me that this is in some ways a classic road novel. I mean, there's the outward quest, there's the inward journey, and the company, and the encounters of very interesting people. What do you think of that idea? I think that's absolutely correct. So, (laughs) you know, as you mentioned, you know, I started my career as a poet and uh, began writing fiction in roughly 2015. And it's true that for poets, sometimes when we think in terms of plot and structure and narrative, it can get a little bit tricky for us because, you know, we don't really necessarily have that in our toolbox so much. Um, And I had a colleague who always used to say one of the easiest ways to give your your novel structure is simply to have it be they have they're they're moving from point A to point B in a certain amount of time. She's like, that's you know, they have to be there by date. And I've always just sort of taken that to heart. So it's not true in my other books. But in this particular book, yes, I very much followed that formula. I love the idea of the momentum of the outward journey, but also contrasted and, and I guess, accelerated in some ways by the inward journey. And then the possibility of all of the people that they'll encounter along the road. So tell me if this was This was kind of a form that was freeing, exciting, challenging. How'd you approach it? Well, you know, I was in Mongolia in 2008, and um, and I basically, you know, when I, I've been very fortunate to travel quite extensively to many, many different countries. And when I go, I, I basically take this kind of route where I just try and see as much as possible because I often don't know how I'm going to use it. Um, and so, as I mentioned, I was there in 2008, and yet it wasn't until, you know, after 2015 that I began to have an idea um, that came to me, and then I thought, oh, that could work really well in Mongolia. Um, and so, because there were various things that I knew I wanted to touch on. I wanted to touch on the history of the country. Obviously, Mongolia was the center of the world um, back in the 12th century. I knew I wanted to be talking about Buddhism as well, um, particularly the idea of what happens and how people find reincarnations and things like that. So I knew that by having it be a, a road trip, it would allow me to look at different regions of Mongolia. It would allow me to explore the history. And you're absolutely right, to have my characters meet and encounter as many different people as possible. I can't wait to talk to you about Mongolia. I'm going to get to that. But as with good road novels or quest stories, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, they go back as long as people were telling stories and writing Mm -hmm. stories down. You know, there's something mystical, something spiritual about the quest and the travelers are accruing wisdom as they progress, even if they're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. I I wondered if there are some classic quest stories like the Odyssey or maybe more contemporary that that you find influential that maybe you were drawing from in some ways as you thought about how this would proceed. Mm-hmm. I think I was thinking in terms of 
not necessarily the Odyssey, but in terms of spiritual quests, you know. And I'm not sure I can name any specifically, but even thinking about, like, you know, for example, like the Holy Grail or, or things mm. like that. So mm. it's the idea, of, again, of people going out on spiritual quests um, specifically to oftentimes, you know, it's, it's a metaphor for their spiritual quest, even though they're out on a physical journey, you know, searching for something. And so I think those particular stories um, have always resonated with me. I've always been very interested in the um, in the sagas, so in the Icelandic sagas mm. and other kinds of things. You know, there, again, there's often like supernatural elements to them um, as people go questing, you know, for swords or rings or what have you, you know. So I've always been very much interested in this idea of physical quests being used as metaphors for spiritual quests. And I think that oftentimes it's almost like if you think in terms of uh, The Wizard of Oz, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's right. a, physical, a physical quest that, again, you know, results in an ultimate um, epiphany about about the self. You know, ultimately, people who who are truly happy and are truly you know enlightened, quote unquote, really don't need to go anywhere, right? But um, but oftentimes, like I said, we use quests in order to do that kind of work to help us undig things that are internal. Don't we all? Don't you think at some point in our lives need that kind of quest? I mean, and and what I was asking about also is often the people that are on the quest do not realize, I mean, the Wizard of Oz is a great example of this, right? Do Mm -hmm. not really realize the kind of wisdom and knowledge that they're gaining until perhaps they're close to the end of the quest. You know, it's like, but you could Mm -hmm. always go home, just click Mm -hmm. your your slipper, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing, right? Yeah. There's a great quote that I actually use in some, and I have a story collection that I'm working on, and it's kind of like one of the opening quotes to a story. And it comes from Lucretius, who I think was a Roman writer, Mm -hmm. and it's from his The Nature of Things, the Rerum Natura. Um, And basically, and again, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, you know, the, the tired man goes out from his mansion seeking something because, you know, he's in search of, but ultimately he comes home and realizes, you know, that he doesn't have to go seeking for it. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's very much true that, you know, you can even think about it in terms of, um, you know, contemporary culture and thinking about Instagram and things like that and, and the whole world of travel, travel blogs and things, you know, where people go out, you know, in search of, sometimes it's simply in search of the perfect photo or what have you, but, um I think ultimately those kinds of um, the kinds of travel stories that truly resonate with us are ones in which it goes beyond just the superficial, you know, the accumulation of just experiences and where true personal transformation happens. I didn't want to forget to ask you what it is about the Icelandic and some of the the northern mythology and quests Mm -hmm. and sagas that intrigue Mm -hmm. you that. I find that kind of surprising that that you're drawn Mm -hmm. to that literature. Why? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, why well, I go through weird – I go down – I just shouldn't say weird, but rabbit holes, you know, uh-huh. where I – like I, I can't remember when, but some years ago where I read as many sagas as I could. And I think the thing that attracts me to them is when I was writing my first novel, She Weeps Each Time You're Born, which is set in Vietnam, and in many ways it's a ghost story mm-hmm. about somebody who has the power to hear the voices of the dead. Um, when I was writing that particular book – Um, You know, I'd already written four books of poetry and I was thinking about, okay, so what do I bring to this particular narrative world that maybe other writers don't bring? And I realized that hopefully, knock on wood, one of my strengths as a writer, because I'm a poet, is language. And then I realized hopefully a second um, strength of mine is for whatever reason – 
I have an ability to make up narratives very quickly mm. um, and plot. And for example, like I've done improv. I really love improv comedy. Like you're on the spot and you have to come up with something like bang, 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 right? And so I realized that that was another, another sort of skill that I had. But I realized that ultimately I could enrich that if I moved into what I think of as like a 4D world. So if 3D world is, is the world that we know it, if I can add one magical element to that world, it allows you to expand it and to go in unexpected places and to try unexpected kinds of things. And so what I love about the sagas is, as I mentioned, it's that supernatural element. You know, you have, when people are writing them, the question of like, did they really believe that people turned into bears or is that just kind of a literary (laughs) convention or what have you? But again, I just love that element of the world sliding in and out of just this regular 3D sort of again, uh, existence that we all know and sliding into something slightly different. And so all of my novels, my three novels, have all done that. As I mentioned in the very first one, it's the ghost story element of it. In my second one, which is about a, a, a team of uh, field hockey players in Massachusetts in the 1980s. There's a bit of hive mind and witchcraft that happens in that particular book. And then thinking in this one, it's the idea of twin brothers who, um, again, have access to each other's minds. So I've always been interested, like I said, in that super and just having one supernatural element. What I find, and this is this is interesting to hear you kind of tease this out. I find that you do this in a really seamless way that other fiction that has some kind of supernatural quality to it or mm-hmm. magical real you know whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. you know you're not announcing the now this is the part of the novel where you kind of suspend truth or mm-hmm. um you know or, or skepticism and slide into this story with mm-hmm. me I, I i guess i want to know about how you think about the the weaving of this in such a seamless way Mm -hmm. I have to admit that a lot of what I do, and I think it happens because, again, I began my career as a poet, but a lot of what I do in my fiction and also in my playwriting is very intuitive. Um, I I think we're all just natural-born storytellers. You know, it's we watch movies, we watch TV, you know, we've read novels, all those kinds of things. And so we we just have a sense of how stories should sound, you know? Mm-hmm. And so in thinking about how I weave these, I, do, I can't say that I actually consciously think it out. Um, I've never been one who, I have writer friends who definitely plot things out and graph things out and have a real trajectory for where they're going. I usually just sit down and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I like to write myself into corners and then have to write my way out of them. Having said that, I'm working on a new work in which I think I actually will have to plot it out a bit because Why? it's... Um, it's a horror book, which I'm describing as a horror book, and I actually haven't been sleeping that well because I've read four horror novels in the last week um, because I don't really read horror. And I'm like, I need to read this if I'm going to understand how to write it. And so I did. I, I This week I've read four. Uh, and I'm like, oh. What a great um, challenge. Yeah, but in thinking about it, the thing that I've realized in reading four contemporary horror books is that I'm actually more interested in psychological horror, and that mm. would be Shirley Jackson, that mm-hmm. would be Lord of the Flies, yep. that would be that kind of thing. So, um, And so because it is psychological horror and things like that, I do feel like there are certain markers that I want to hit in certain places or certain things that I, I know I want to have happen. So um, never say never, even though I historically have not been a writer who plots things out and graphs things out. I think that this time I'm going to try it and see what happens. You know, um, I, I so, yeah. guess the way I think about the difference 
and and I've read some horror, straight ahead horror fiction. My husband's a big mm-hmm. fan of it. Mm-hmm. I too like the more psychologically suspenseful mm-hmm. kind of horror. I, I, mm-hmm. I guess the way I think about that, the difference is the in the in the psychological horror. It's the character questioning mm-hmm. if what they mm-hmm. think they see is really true right Mm -hmm. is their own perception to be trusted Mm -hmm. and i guess in more straight ahead horror i think of that as yes the world the leashes are off it's all chaos and what i see is what what is actually happening i'd love Mm -hmm. your take on this what do you think Mm -hmm. yeah so stephen king has a um a book called dance macabre which um is not it's him talking about the genre of horror. So it's mm-hmm. not actually like a novel by him, but it's just him simply having various chapters about film or about um, stories or novels and things like that. And in that book, he actually quotes another author whose name I'm forgetting. I think it's like Anne something. But he quotes her as saying, there's no such thing as, ha- as haunted places. There's only haunted mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think that makes sense to me. And that's something that I'm going to try and incorporate into this book I'm working on. Have you have you also read King's on writing since since you I were I have not you haven't I have not okay. no it's really interesting he's, he's you know I know a lot of literary writers sometimes are, although actually if you scratch literary writers just a little bit like they've all gone through a Steve uh, I shouldn't say they all but many of them have gone through a Stephen King phase you know I think the perception is that somehow oh we're like oh ho, ho, he's not literary but he really is right. and um, you know his his um, collection of four novellas i think it's called four seasons where all four became movies you know it's where like stand by me comes from Mm -hmm. and the shawshank redemption i mean those novellas they're not scary necessarily but they're you know they're as good as anything and so um so yeah so thank you for the tip i will definitely have to check it out if you're listening uh this morning to big books and bold ideas my friday book show i'm in conversation with kwan berry she's a poet and a novelist and a professor of english at the university of wisconsin madison and we're talking about her newest novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. Uh, so let's go back to some of the travel that mm. you did. You did, I guess, what I think of as an international road trip. <laughs> um, there are references to your travels in the Gobi Desert. It sounds mm. like you also at some point went into Bhutan. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm wondering, and and you were in Mongolia, into other mm-hmm. parts of Mongolia, was this adventurous travel to see the world and then, I don't know, poems and novels come out of that experience? Or were you traveling specifically for research? Mm-hmm. There are a couple of trips that I took. So generally speaking, when I go somewhere, as I mentioned, I don't really know how it's going to be used. So, for example, the book that I'm working on right now, the horror book, is set in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And I was in Antarctica in, 20, in 2004. So I went there simply to see the landscape. I have no idea. And it's only now, again, almost 20 years later, that I finally have an idea for how to use that particular landscape. Um, so I was in Mongolia, as I mentioned. You know, I was there as a tourist. Uh, I spent my birthday – usually my birthday's in the summer. And so I should say my birthday's always in the summer, but usually I'm traveling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm usually traveling. And so I did. I spent, you know, an amazing birthday um, actually in the Gobi. And wow. um, so that was that trip. But then after – and again, as I mentioned, that was 2008. And then when I began to realize that I had this idea for a novel, then I went on another trip that was a little bit more research-based. And on that trip, I spent a lot of time in India and Bhutan. And so in thinking about it um, – 
It was the idea that I was interested in going to the Buddhist areas of India, mm-hmm. which include Dharamshala, where the the Dalai Lama, um, his government in exile, is mm-hmm. located. Yeah. I was also in Sikkim, which used to be an independent Buddhist country, kingdom, um, but was absorbed by India, I think, in the 1970s. So that particular trip, again, I, I had this idea in mind. I talked to a lot of monks. I talked to a lot of lay people. I spent a few days in a, in, um, a monastery, a teaching monastery. You know, I met a young reincarnation um, and things like that. So again, so the first trip, like I said, was more just to sort of see Mongolia and the second trip was more aimed at actually speaking with people. So how do your, I guess, powers of observation shift when you are, I'm here to soak up the experience versus, I know I'm going to use that initial experience and now I want to deepen my observation because I'm going to write about this. How does that differ? Mm -hmm. For me, it actually, it doesn't. I don't know why I'm built this way and it could change it. You know, you could wake up tomorrow and things could be different. But for whatever reason, I... I remember things that I want to remember. <laughs> I have a pretty good memory is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and I do I do keep, because I don't in my non-traveling life, I don't keep any kind of journals. But when I travel, I do keep um, a journal of just like what I've done, you know, where I've been, all those kinds of things. And so regardless of what kind of travel I'm doing, if it's just for fun or if it is more for research, I do keep a travel journal. And I've discovered through the years that you know, I can go back and when I read that, like I instantly remember things. So sometimes the travel journal can even just be a list, you know, and then just somehow just seeing that again, I, it's like it comes back to me like, oh, yeah, that's who I talked to. That's what they said. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the only other kind of difference is just the fact that when I'm there more for fun, I'm not as interested necessarily in talking to specific people um, or experts or things like that. So, so as I mentioned on that second trip, then that was the opportunity for me to, to chat with folks and to see certain things. So, I mean, it sounds like you use the journal again for, I'm going to jot down some details of this conversation. I mean, how how much detail are you putting in the journal about the senses, the sensual experience of being mm-hmm. in that place? Because, I mean, there is... I think a lot of that in this novel, and I remember a lot of that in She Weeps Each Time You're Born. Or does mm-hmm. that all just kind of come back prompted by the spare stuff that you've written in the journal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't write down sensory things at, really? at all. Like huh. I might mention if there's an interesting image. So, for example, I remember in being in um, Morocco and that there were, there were moments where um, you would see goats in trees. And I'd be like, there's a goat in a tree. And it's actually pretty common. They why? somehow get Tell up in the tree and they, they eat the leaves. Oh. Yeah. And I was just like, I have no idea. And it's, it's, it's in other similar landscapes too. Like you just, I, the first time I saw it, I thought it was a mistake. And then it's like, oh, no, they, they somehow climb trees <laughs> and eat leaves. And so I just remember those kinds of things. Like even now as I'm sitting here, if I think about Antarctica, I, like the landscape comes back to me. I can, I can picture I can picture the blue of the water and the ice and, you know, various things. I do take photos. Or I, I should say mm. I used to take photos. I take a lot less photos now. Why? I've always been very, I've always been very careful about not photographing people. Mm. Um, for privacy, I, I I think it's everybody's right not to be photographed, and I and I, I appreciate that some people now you know you know ask folks, can I take your photo? But I think that that's still like a a strange power imbalance, so I just don't. But um, but I do take you know photos of landscapes and things like that. Uh, 
to be honest, I, I have a camera. It's not, you know, it's just a tiny little travel camera. So many people now use their phones. Right. I actually don't have a cell phone. So um, I don't take as many pictures now because I just forget like, oh, it's an actual camera. You know, like I need to plug it in and charge it. And <laughs> it's just usually it's not ready to go. So do you do you sometimes feel I have a little debate with myself about this, because if I get too focused on capturing the image of where I am, Mm-hmm. I lose that sense of drinking it in, being still, you know, mm-hmm. observing. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you – so I try not to do as much of that. And they, yet that mm-hmm. means I come home without images that I might have wanted to preserve. How do you mm-hmm. think about that? Yeah. You know, I've been very fortunate to travel quite a bit. So um, I've actually – I have actually been to all seven continents and it's true when I was traveling when I was younger, it was more important to me to – or I shouldn't say it was more important to me, but it was important to to, ha- to take pictures and to have myself be in those photos. Mm-hmm. And I would come home and I would make photo albums, you know, and they're, they're scattered around my house on this coffee table. It's like, oh, here's me here. Or here me. But I have to admit that as I get older, I, I people have been asking me this because the summer is coming and they keep asking like, so where are you going this summer? I feel – like I've actually come to the end of a certain kind of travel. Really? Um, yeah. Why? I, it's not that I'm – I think it's maybe going back to what we were talking about. Like, you know, I can, again, I can't remember the exact Lucretius uh, quote, but about how the man goes out in search of something and then ultimately comes home again, you know. Um, but I'm feeling that more and more. Like I don't feel – I don't. I'm not feeling as compelled to see things. I used – and again, it, it makes me feel – I understand that I'm speaking from a, a space of extreme privilege um, and I, rec- I recognize that. So – but for example, I, the last trip I took, I was actually in Colombia mm. and, you know, I went to the Gold Museum. And then I thought, hmm, I've seen the gold museum in Peru. I've seen like the gold museum in Athens. I've seen, you know, it's like how many gold museums does one need to see in a lifetime? You know, <laughs> my and again, like I said, this comes from an extreme place of privilege. My father has this joke about when, you know, he and my mother would travel in Germany. He would call it, um, I think he called it ADC. And I don't I don't know how it works here with language, but he, he would call it like, oh, it's another darn castle. You know what I mean? He'd be like, how many castles can you see? You know what I mean? Um, and I feel like I have a little bit of that, which, again, I, like as I said, it's the world's smallest violin playing for me. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. No, I hear your disclaimer on that. The thing I guess I would offer is, isn't there something to the kind of travel that says, I'm not going to do checklist travel mm-hmm. this time. I'm mm-hmm. going to go be there mm-hmm. and soak it in and live it. You know, and have that kind of a a travel mm-hmm. experience than a well, mm-hmm. I saw four museums, amazing, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Like, how many gold museums can you see? What do you think? <laughs> I think I I had always kind of tried to travel like that. So usually mm-hmm. when I would go, it would be for like four to six weeks. You know, I don't think I ever went somewhere for two months, but it was I was trying to go for longer periods of time, and I definitely didn't. I didn't have a checklist kind of yeah. thing. And I think there's something to be said about that. And again, I just think for me, I think for other folks, you know, it's great. They they now do think in terms of like the ethics of travel. And they right. often talk about like when you go to try and stay longer in one place and to try and do various things, which I had always unconsciously been trying to do. I just think that for me, for whatever reason, I finally come to a place where I'm like, mm, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> but to go back to um, a point that you were making about it, I don't have – I don't there's probably a word for it and I don't I don't have it but a word for somebody who has a memory that's um 
that's not photographic, but that is more about audio. Um, If I hear things, I tend to remember them. When I was in high school, I remember that I had a a teacher. You were supposed to keep a notebook. You know, it seems like pretty basic. You keep a notebook. You're supposed to take notes in it. You know, you're supposed to do all these things. And I never would. And he wouldn't collect it very often. But then one semester, he finally collected it. And I basically got like a zero on my notebook. (laughs) And my my, – Totally affected my grade. My grade would plunge. Anyway, and because I kept trying to tell him that if I take notes, then I'm not listening. Yeah. You know, like for me, oh, I'm yeah. like, I just have to sit there and listen and I'll get it. But if I have to write stuff down, it's like, oh, I'm and I just, you know, and I think he finally got it because uh, he had this, um, this is back in the 1980s. He had this challenge where I'm from Massachusetts. So Michael Dukakis had just lost the election to George H.W. Bush. Uh-huh. And the teacher, you know, to get an extra hundred, it was an extra credit assignment. He said the first person who could come and tell him what the electoral college tally had been would get like an extra hundred in the in the grade book. And I, I instantly knew because I'd heard it on the news the night before, you know. Right. So it's the same thing with travel. I, I can't take notes. If I'm, if I'm just listening, I'll get it. You know, if you take too many pictures, then yes, I, I'll actually lose that space. Um, so I just need to be present um, and hopefully I can absorb what I need to absorb. Okay. So, so I'm going to ask this question differently than <laughs> I was given what you've just said. Mm. I'm taking a group of book lovers to Bhutan in November. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... I want to know, mm-hmm. you know, sensory-wise, maybe what your listening experience was like and what I ought to be listening for. Mm-hmm. So when I went – so I don't know how it works now. When I was there, you had to have government guide. Yes, that is um, still the case. Yes. And so and I had listed off various things that I was interested in. And so the guide – you know, put together uh, the things that I saw and things like that. In hindsight, I can't, I'm not sure I can really speak to the idea of what to listen for, but ideally now in hindsight, if I were to go back, I would say if possible to spend as much time walking as possible. And so um, unfortunately, I drove from a lot of, again, they're not cities, but from a lot of places to places. And I wish in hindsight that I had walked. Why? So, um, you know, historically, that's how people got around. Again, it would take you a week, but that's what you would do. You would walk from, you know, and I think you get a more, I don't, I, I, you know, the word authentic, it's so so fraught in so many ways, right? But Mm -hmm. um, I think getting away from the road, if possible, is good because I do think that roads have are changing the culture of Bhutan in certain kinds of ways. You know, um, I, there would be much to talk about it, but I, I don't want to – I think people have to go for themselves and experience, you know, the culture and things like that. But you can definitely see the influence of, like I said, of roads because now there are trucks, for example, that bring in um, – you know, candies or processed foods, which mm-hmm. didn't, you know, used to exist even probably like 30 years ago. You know, um, there's just various things that are happening. And I think that if one can walk as much as possible, um, it's possible then to, to to be a bit closer to the landscape. I'm really happy to hear you say that. There's a lot of walking and hiking on the itinerary. So thank mm, you. Okay. <laughs> you good. validated that. I'm Carrie Miller. I'm in conversation with Quan Berry. She's a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a novelist, a poet. And we're talking about, yeah, some of her travel experiences that inform her new novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. So 
Your central characters in, in the novel are two brothers, one a monk, one who has turned away from a spiritual life. By the way, there's a lot of walking, <laughs> some riding <laughs> uh, in, in this quest. And they are to find the reincarnation of a spiritual leader. So how informed were you by the pretty specific process that occurs when a successor to the Dalai Lama is sought? How much, I guess, mm-hmm. did you know about not just the public part of that, but also the the private, the behind-the-scenes part of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some really great documentaries which are listed in the back of the book and the bibliography that one can watch, like Unmistaken Child and My Reincarnation. So, um, and you learn a lot about the process. I mean, you really see somebody go in search of a child and what that takes, you know. Um, I'd also read some, again, there's a bibliography at the back of the book that one can check out. So I had been... I've been very aware, and that's one of the things that was one of the engines that actually um, got me thinking about a story like this and compelled me to write it. But some time ago, he now says something different, but some time ago, the Dalai Lama had said that he, because he fears that the Chinese will politicize Mm -hmm. his death and will name a puppet Dalai Lama after he passes, he had said that he was considering taking the unprecedented step of reincarnating while he's still alive in an effort to, to be able to control who his his um, successor would be. He now doesn't say that anymore, but he did. And when I first heard that story, I'm like, wow, he's going to reincarnate while he's still I mean, alive. What, my... what did that mean to you? What does that mean? I, I, I'm not quite sure, but I, <laughs> I think it meant that he was going to somehow find his reincarnation while he was still alive. I mean, I just take him at face value, you know, like, okay. Um, I don't know. I'm sure that there would be a big ceremony. You know, Tibetan Buddhism is, is very heavy on the ceremony. It's beautiful. Um, you know, there's oracles and things that were consulted. So I'm sure it would be, it would be, um, yeah, that, that things would happen and that somehow that would happen. Um, he Again, like I said, he doesn't now say that. But in general, hearing him talk like that just got me thinking about reincarnations in general. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not just him, but there are a lot. As I mentioned, you know, I met a young reincarnation in Bhutan. And, um, and yeah, so I was just interested in that world and in how all that worked. And like I said, I was fortunate to be able to watch um, documentaries. And, and so I've always known that the process of the Dalai Lama particularly now in the 21st century, is fraught and that there has always been a political element to it. Um, And so, yeah, I was definitely keeping that in the back of my mind as I was writing the book. You know, when you said that, um, I met a young reincarnation earlier. I thought, that's such, that's just kind of awkward language. Mm -hmm. Who, I mean, how did that come to be? Is that how they refer to themselves? No. I am a reincarnation of. I mean, <laughs> I'm really curious no. about this. Yeah. Depends on what you want. Because, again, they, in the book, you know, people, I've made them up, but there are specific titles that yes. folks have, yeah. you know. Um, but, again, they're called tuku. I don't know if they call themselves that, but they refer to – that's one word that's referred to them. You know, Rinpoche, the, the precious ones, mm-hmm. you know, other kinds of things. Um, so this particular child was probably about 10 or 11 when I met him in Bhutan. And um, 
so yeah, you know, he was very shy. I was there. I was just there in the monastery, just sort of hanging out for a few days. And the the abbot or the principal of the monastery is a very Western facing person. And he asked me just, you know, just laugh. And he's like, hey, would you teach an English class? I was like, oh, you know, I'm like, I am an English professor, but I don't really know. Any. But but I was like, yeah, sure. And, the, and it was a monastery in which, you know, the, the monks were anywhere from like five years of age up to maybe 25. Mm. Um and so, so yeah, so I did, and, and again, I met this, like I said, this reincarnation, and he, he was just, he was such a sweet kid, and, um, and yeah, so, but, um, but yeah, I can't answer your question further as to how, how they refer to, you know, privately to each yeah, other. I just, yeah. I just saw that he, he definitely had certain perks Got and it. things like that. Um, I, I was reading recently about how the search for the reincarnation happens, and. What what some of these sources were saying is that monks take note of the direction that the Dalai Lama, you know, in the in the search for the Dalai Lama's successor, that they take note of the direction the Dalai Lama was looking when he died, where the smoke goes from his cremation, and then they seek out children who were born around the time the Dalai Lama died. I mean, mm-hmm. what else did you know about mm-hmm. how this search gets underway for the Dalai mm-hmm. Lama's successor? You know, for the Dalai, I don't, I can't speak to if the process is extremely different for the Dalai Lama. But in general, I mean, there's all different kinds of protocols, which I do talk about a bit in the book. So, for example, oftentimes people are having dreams, people who are close to the the monk who is who is dying, right, right. you know, so dreams are noted. Sometimes it's noted that somebody will sit by this, um, the sacred lake and look for reflections or, you know, in the, in the waters. Um, sometimes after the cremation, you know, the body is looked to for clues, you know. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of ways they use. There's a lot of, I think, tools in the toolbox as to what they reference and what they think about. Sometimes um, a monk will actually write, write his own letter and talk about certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, so so again, I, I I couldn't necessarily point to one particular practice. My guess would be that they use a whole host of things. You noted earlier that these two brothers, the central characters, are they share a kind of telepathy where they can read each other's thoughts. And I really admired the way you described what it's like for the brothers to try to keep one another out of their thoughts. I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was really again, it was it was sensual it was specific and and i pulled one of the examples Mm -hmm. uh chaloon tells us when i want to keep mun from my mind i imagine whiteness the snowy steps winter as far as the eye can see to sever our connection mun prefers fire okay tell me how you came to that to these very specific images um, Mm -hmm. for kind of closing the door to this Mm -hmm. telepathy that they share. Mm -hmm. It made sense to me that they each embody different aspects of um, of a human personality in certain kinds of ways and also of the natural world. You know, like they're they think of themselves as being opposites. But in some ways, and that's how they that's how the main character thinks, you know, he at the beginning of the novel, he thinks that he is the opposite of his brother and that they have nothing in common. But I suppose another way of thinking about it, which he doesn't, is to think of it as his brother is his complement. You know, they complement each other. Right. Um, and so I there's a section towards the very beginning where, um, 
you know, one of them is being asked about the various stages of um, of hell and, mm, you know, what hell represents. Right. And it's true that I had read about that, that there's different kinds of hells, that there is this wintry hell, which is more about the idea of, you know, a soul that's inward looking in certain mm-hmm. kinds of ways. And that there's also a, a, um, a fiery hell uh, with a soul that's like too proud or what have you. Right. So it made sense to me that they would represent those two poles. How would you describe what has happened to the brother who, as I I noted, has kind of turned away from spiritual life? How would you put where he is in his spiritual development and the decision that he's made about that? Mm-hmm. I think it's actually not as uncommon as you might think really? that people who are found as children um, often decide to uh, leave um, their positions. And usually what happens, I think my understanding is that when that happens, it, they usually do for a period of years and then oftentimes come back. Um, and again, it's the idea that I think it's almost with anything. You, I was just thinking about it recently with respect to, you know, um, Queen Elizabeth's Jubilee. Mm-hmm. You know, every time I see those photos of like Prince George and his siblings, you know, the idea that you were born into this life and that that is what you are expected to do. You know, obviously in thinking about the public's a fascination with, you know, Prince Harry, who decided that that's not what he wants to do and how he's trying to make a new a new way for himself. You know, I hadn't thought about it before, but like maybe Mun is the Prince Harry <laughs> you know, of, <laughs> I love that. of his world. But I think, you know, it's, it's easily relatable, this idea that you fall into a particular life and an, as a child and that you don't feel like you have other options, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this particular character, the beginning of the book, you know, that's kind of the space that he's inhabiting, thinking that he wants to be his own person and what that means. And I think after this journey has unfolded, he, he recognizes that there could be space for this particular religious life for him and space for him in which he has chosen this life. You know what I mean? So the idea that if he comes back to it, then it is his choice as opposed to it, you know, being something that was foisted on him as a child. You know, the, the 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 royals example is a great example of this, because mm-hmm. imagine if your life was basically written for mm-hmm. you. And, and think about the way we view what it means to get all the perks, the, you know, the the value, the things you get as being a royal. We mm-hmm. I, I think... You know, the from the outside looking in, it's like, and you'd give all that up, but mm-hmm. I'm, but mm-hmm. I guess I've never thought about it. Like your life is written, and unless mm-hmm. you choose to walk away from that, mm-hmm. um, there isn't that much free will to mm-hmm. turn any which way you want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. I think about that. I, I, when I watch them, I always just think, oh, I personally would <laughs> never you? want that. Yeah. I would never want that for my children either. The idea that like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, I mean, who can say, right? But it's the idea that obviously little Prince George there will have some amazing experiences mm, and will have yeah. the opportunity to have amazing travels and things. But um, even in thinking about the, the future of the monarchy, you know, not to get off topic, but obviously Kate and William were, I think they were in Jamaica, you know, for some kind of like official tour. And mm-hmm. it's true that like 2022, people are over it. <laughs> you know, People are like, uh, well, you know, the monarchy did X, Y, and Z to us under colonialism, and we don't really need these people coming just to, you know, <laughs> look so, at us. Yeah. yeah. So in some ways, I feel really bad for, you know, Prince, little Prince George there. That's kind of a future he's staring down. And so, I mean, who knows? But, um, but yeah. Uh, I, I think this is a good place to ask if you'll read from the chapter that is titled, 
why do we need to believe our lives must add up to some great narrative? I love that title. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But if you would read some portion of that or all of it, whatever whatever is right for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is actually at the end of the very first chapter, I do believe. And basically what's happened is that the main character, Chulun, is he's been trying to journey from his monastery to the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. And so he's just been picked up by a policeman named Noyun, who will now drive him to the capital city. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so this is this chapter. Why do we need to believe our lives must add up to some grand narrative? The sun is somewhat higher in the sky. I open my eyes. Outside the truck's window, the grasslands float as though they have no end. There are no lands more beautiful than this anywhere on earth. I imagine this is what the world looks like in the first verdant days of its birth. The endless blue skies, rolling green hills, wholeness. Where are we going? I asked Noyon. Already, the shadowy outline of Yatu Gol Monastery rising up out of the earth is falling into memory. Ulaanbaatar, of course, says Noyan. It is obvious he is excited to have an excuse to drive to the capital. I am glad my pitiful existence can be of use to someone. When the only hope is a boat and there is no boat, I will be the boat. I close my eyes and settle in for the three hours it takes us to travel there. This is neither a beginning nor an end. If all life on earth is one chapter in the story of the universe, each cosmic night four billion years long, then then am I allowed to write a page in the tale of existence? Am I to be granted a single word? Does the story even matter, or is the witnessing enough, the being aware of each moment of beauty and hardship along the path? And why do we need to believe our lives must add up to some grand narrative? And what happens when we stop believing this? On my wrist, the Rinpoche's watch sounds the hour. Cornberry reading from her novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. So I wondered if you've come up with an answer to the question that you pose in the title of that chapter. <laughs> uh, let's see. Why do we need, <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, why do we need to be like my episode? Um, again, it comes back to the idea of storytelling. You know, I, um, I'm very much a believer in the idea that in some ways, uh, all we are are stories, right? And the question of who are you without your story, um, which I'm I'm very interested in. And, and, you know, we're obviously very much engrossed by our own personal stories. You know, we're always looking to add to them or to subtract for them or what have you. But at the end of the day, they are just stories. And I understand that, that that's the human side of us needs that kind of um, pillar in which to, you know, to, to stake our claim of who we are, but it's also true that in Buddhism, you know, one of the one of the central tenets of it is the, this idea of non-self. You know, that theoretically we are not our stories; we're something beyond that. Um, and so, um, but I, I do recognize, yes, why storytelling is an important aspect of the human condition. You know, I was thinking about this when you mentioned Instagram and travel. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Instagram is a great medium for distorting this idea of why we need to believe our lives add up to some grand narrative. You know, documenting the, I'm not on Instagram very often, but documenting kind of like the most beautiful moment, right? The the styling, the arranging, so that you can be seen doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I, I think of that as a distorting force mm-hmm. in the question that you ask here and the answer that you gave. How do you see mm-hmm. it? Yeah. I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, you know, thinking about Descartes, you know, it's the idea like I post, therefore I am, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I think, you know, sadly, I think that's true in many ways. I suppose there's always been like an equivalent of it, but it does seem that social media has really ramped it up and made it and foregrounded it. And we see it in ways now it's much more present than it, you know, than it, that idea that people needed to be seen in order to to exist, exist in some kinds of ways. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's, you know, and thinking about this particular novel. So, you know, it's written in present tense, the entire thing right. by and large, like it's 99% present tense. And it's really, it is theoretically the idea of journey into a moment and the idea of recognizing what, what it means to live in the present, you know, what that would mean for us and how in some ways, if you really did live in the present, would it be possible to live with less of a story? And then what happens when you do that? I think it's actually a kind of freedom because I actually think that stories, while you useful are also a kind of prison in the sense that we can get Hmm. caught up in them and we can get pigeonholed and we can get, you know, we have to live up to whatever our role is in the story. And so I think the less of a story you have, again, the freer you are. You said that with uh, the conviction of some experience. Mm. Mm -hmm. Is that the case? (laughs) Yes. Um, so? (laughs) Well, it's it's a lot of things added up over time, and it's still obviously a work in progress, but um, there are various ways in which I try and recognize the usefulness of stories, but what I try not to get caught up in them. So even like little things, you know, like I don't have, as I mentioned, I don't have a cell phone. You know, I don't really have a social media presence. I've been, you know, in this world as a writer for 22 years. And this year was the first year that I finally set up a web page. And the only reason wow. I did that was because I um, I actually had my first play produced and I wanted people to know because of the pandemic that they could actually watch the play also online. You didn't have to be here in person. But now that the play is over, I'm like, I should probably we take down my webpage. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, so it's the idea that, you know, for a lot of writers and, I, and more power to them, I'm just not built that way, which is fine. So it's not a critique of other folks. But um, I'm not a hustler. And again, I don't say anything. I don't mean that pejoratively against people who do hustle to get, you know, their name out there or to get their work out there. That's just not how I'm built. I don't play into those kinds of things, or I shouldn't say play into. I'm just not interested in it. And so to me, the more I can just. Um, not get caught up in the story of what it means to be a, a novelist, then the happier I am. You know, it's interesting that you chose that word hustler because it's got mm-hmm. so many connotations to it. Mm-hmm. Initially, I thought you meant, well, I what I do think you meant was I'm not hustling always to get my image out there, you know, to boost up my mm-hmm. image and to get more attention. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that is also I'm not a hustler. I'm not out there, you know, playing the the game, um, turning the cards. It, it was an interesting choice of word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I said, I have friends who are like some of my best friends are hustlers. You know? <laughs> so I have more power. Is that really I'm true? Just, oh, yeah. Yeah. That- and, and they have to be some of them in the fields that they're in. Like yeah. you have to be, you know, if you want to have a certain kind of career. I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate that by, I began my career as a poet because in some ways, in some ways, and again, it's changing, but in some ways, nobody cares about poetry. You know what I mean? And so it's like I didn't have to get caught up in trying to. 
like, oh, I'm doing this thing that like a thousand people in the country will buy by book out of 350 million. Okay, I don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't have to. And so it freed me, you know what I mean? And so, um, and I, again, speaking from a, a place of extreme privilege, you know, I, I am a tenured professor at a Big Ten school, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a day job. Um, again, I, I'm very open about these things when I'm talking with students and I'm trying to help mentor them and think about their futures that, yes, I speak from a place of privilege. I'm going to be okay without hustling, right? And so I recognize that fact. I think I read somewhere that you said that um, most of your days end with reading, several Mm -hmm. hours of it. Is that right? It depends. So when I'm actually writing, when I'm in the throes of writing, I find that I actually can't read. And so my day will either usually end with, yeah, reading or – but so I'm about to really get into this, again, Antarctic novel. And so when I do that, I will probably primarily stop reading. For what a do long you time. do then? How do you rest your mind or what do you do with that time? Well, it depends now actually because I will be off from teaching. So it used to be that when I would teach, I would, you know, I would have my life during the day and then at night, that's when I would read or write. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm not teaching, the truth of the matter is I am a st- like I went to bed last night at like 4 a.m., you know. So I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, I could just do that. I could just, you know, stay up all night and then just, you know, sleep from like 4 to noon. So um, it just depends. For whatever reason, my real brain, as in my brain that wants to write, doesn't wake up until 6 p.m. I don't know why. I can do anything. <laughs> wow. I can walk around all day. I can do stuff. But at 6 p.m., that's when I'm like, oh, wow. okay, now huh. I'm awake. I can write during the day sometimes. I shouldn't say I, c- I can never do it. But for whatever reason, I can just – my circadian rhythm is like – So when you're, when you're reading, mm-hmm. I wondered if you are a book juggler, you know, where you might read four or five books at the same time and keep mm-hmm. track of them. No, <laughs> no. I read I read one book at a time, and but I do. Um, it's only in the last couple of years that I finally have gotten to a place where I can also stop reading a book. Being mm. like, I used to be like, I have to read this whole thing, like, no matter even if I wasn't enjoying myself. But I don't know. Recently, I'm like, yeah, I, I can put this down. Okay, move on. But you read sequentially. You don't mm-hmm. read simultaneously. No, I don't write. Uh, a lot of writers write out of order. I don't I, like, for example, I have a title first. I have an epigraph. I have a dedication. <laughs> I have the table of contents, and then I have chapter one. Wait a minute, seriously? You know? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, this is so. very ordered. Oh yeah, that's how I. That's so how I the scenes are as they appear in the novel. That is indeed how they were written. That is unusual mm-hmm. these days. It is. Yeah. I also, you know, as I've mentioned a couple times, I also write plays. Right. And my plays, basically, it's the same thing. So I write, yeah, it's just how I do it. So They progress as as you thought of them. That's Mm -hmm. why you don't need to outline, I would assume, don't you think? Well, maybe. But the thing, I mean, I obviously revise, right? And so thinking about my very first book, for example, it was written and then I realized, like, oh, okay, this character is actually this. And then you go back and you revise it so that, you know, certain things come out. Um, so yeah, so yeah, revision is all. I I actually love revision. In some, I shouldn't say hate is too strong a word. I don't hate writing, but um, but I love revision. Revision that's my favorite part. So to me, it's like I have to write. It's like you, it's like having dinner. You have to have dinner in order to have dessert. You know, so it's like I have to write in order to have something to revise. What's the name of the play, and where where can we see it? Well, you could have. So it was. There was a, a specific time period for when it was visible uh, okay. online, but it, it was called The Middleanian Debate, and uh, it was a four-person play um, that happened here in Madison. 
Wow. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Cornberry's new novel is When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. And she was joining us today from Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you very much for the conversation. Fabulous. Thanks for having me again.